everyone. It is your host, Zoe Blasky, and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind Podcast, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more confidence, clarity, and self-awareness. This week's episode I am incredibly excited about. It's actually a bit of a dream come true for me to speak to Reshma Sujani. Reshma is best known for the organization she founded that you will definitely have heard of. It's called Girls Who Code. It's actually one of the most influential nonprofits in the world, which has introduced millions of women to coding and the tech industry. I'd known of Reshma for a long, long, long time, but I actually had never heard her speak beyond her TED talk until I heard her on Stephen's podcast, which is also an incredible interview that I will link. And we talked about that right at the start of the podcast. Reshma and the pandemic found herself with a three-week-old and a preschooler. She was trying to run Girls Who Code with over 500 employees and looking after a young family. And she broke as we know, doing those two jobs full-time is impossible. Rashma says she spent the past 10 years telling girls to fight their way to the top, to lean in and to girl boss their way to the top. But she says it wasn't until the pandemic, when she was trying to run her organisation with her little kids at home, that she realised how wrong she had been. In this episode, Reshma explains her revelation that it wasn't women that needed fixing. We didn't need to keep trying harder. We needed to change the system that we operate in. And Reshma's now founded Mums First and has written an instant bestseller called Pay Up, both with the mission to fix the system, not the woman. In this episode, you're going to learn how the pandemic changed everything for Reshma. And I know that so many of you are going to relate to her story there. We find it so hard to advocate for ourselves and why that is. Where people pleasing comes from, why guilt is so ingrained in us. And Reshma really humbly says that she doesn't know what to do with that mum guilt a lot of the time. Why our societal structures need to start recognising and valuing motherhood. And why we need to stop using words like work-life balance and imposter syndrome. I loved this episode. It really, really made me think. I really hope it makes you think too. I hope it inspires you and I hope it educates you. Here it is. I'm excited to tell you that this week's sponsor is dog food company Pooch and Mutt. And the reason I'm excited is because Pooch and Mutt is actually my husband Guy's company. So we are very much keeping it in the family this week. He founded Pooch and Mutt 13 years ago when he created a supplement to help his family dog, Cookie, who had hip dysplasia. She took that supplement, made a full recovery, and so Guy went on to create more supplements, then dog treats, and now dog food. I don't think he ever expected 13 years later it would have grown into the incredible business that it is today, helping millions of dogs all over the world. So something you need to know about my husband, Guy, is that he is obsessed with health and fitness. He even studied nutrition just to learn more about the ingredients in the food he was making. So at its core, Pooch and Mutt is a health-led company because Guy and the team know that what you eat affects the way you feel. And they're pretty obsessed with helping your dog feel amazing and be as happy as they can be. So Poochinma offers different products to cater for loads of different health conditions and life stages of your dogs. So 
anxiety, digestive issues, joint health, weight management, skin issues, even dental health. And they range from puppy all the way up to senior. So our dog, Pepper, is on the joint health food at the moment because she had a little leg operation and her recovery has been incredible on that food. Not even the vet can believe it. So if you want to give Pooch and Mutt a try, my very generous husband is offering 25% off for Motherkind listeners. So to get 25% off online, just go to poochandmutt.co.uk, use code MOTHERKIND25. Pop in the code MOTHERKIND25 at poochandmutt.co.uk. And please note that excludes subscriptions. Well, Rashma, well, like... I suspect thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of women here in the UK. I first heard you on Stephen's podcast. So I'd read your words before, but I'd never heard you speak. And I spent that episode sobbing, punching the air. It was an emotional roller coaster. I listen to Stephen's podcast every week and it's the only one I've heard covered motherhood, which I thought was really interesting out of 300 plus episodes. And there is a section in it which has been so spread that it's even made posters here in the UK, <laughs> which is when you were talking about imposter syndrome and you said, I'm not buying those courses anymore. I'm not taking another class. I refuse to think that it is me that is need to change when it's the system. And I sent you an email straight away, basically begging you to come on the podcast. I imagine mine was a sea of thousands of emails after that episode. Did you get flooded with messages from the UK after that one? flooded from everywhere. I didn't even have a TikTok account and it went viral on TikTok. And we're like, uh, I think you need to start to, you know, it, so yeah, it blew me away. And I'm still like analyzing why, what it was about that, that really just resonated in a way that I, I don't think there's ever another story I've told that's resonated that way. More than even my TED talk, I posted that clip just recently and I got 2 million views it's hitting a chord with men and women, which is interesting. Why do you think that clip? Maybe because it's a combination of vulnerability with strength, swag with a little bit of deprecation. Well, I think it's two things. To have a woman have access to those rooms and to those echelons of power that most of us will never get to, to have had you access those and for you to say, it really spoke to the part of me about dismantling the privilege and the idea that I'm not welcome in those rooms because you've been in those rooms and actually they're not as scary and you could absolutely show up in those rooms. And I think so much of imposter syndrome, which is what you were talking to, is I don't deserve to be in those rooms because I'm not as good as those men. I'm not as good as those people. It's incredibly powerful. I also think it's just like we have to like nail the coffin imposter syndrome. I was speaking on a panel yesterday about pay equity and it's a similar kind of trajectory, right? When we start talking about pay equity, we immediately start talking about how we have to help women with their negotiation skills and all the things that we are doing wrong to not ask for what we deserve. And I was almost like, stop, stop, stop. We have to stop having this conversation. And we have to start talking about that this is a structural problem. And you'll never actually solve pay equity If the strategy is to teach one woman to negotiate better at a time, there are actually similar, I think, things, imposter syndrome, negotiation, confidence building. There's so many tactics that have been kind of used now against us in the clothes of being helpful to us 
that I'm just seeing. And it enrages me. Probably because I'm like, oh my God, we just, we literally have to take all these things and put them in the dustbin. And it's critical that we do that and critical that we issue spot these things. It's almost like when I started Girls Who Code, I kept seeing, it's always talking about how culture, right? We had Barbie dolls that said, I hate math, let's go shopping instead. So it was never that girls were not good at STEM, but we were living in a society that actively every day through the ads that they were seeing, were telling them that this industry is not for you. And I basically enlisted a group of just moms, dads, parents, girls to be like, anytime you're walking in an airport and you see an ad, or you're on television and you see an ad, or you're walking through a toilet aisle and you see this, let's call it out. And in doing that in 10 years, we really shifted the culture. And it's kind of the same thing here. It's like every time we're sitting at work and we're invited to a panel on negotiation or on sponsorship or mentorship, every time someone offers us a book, every time you see this play out on a podcast you're listening to, we have to just immediately call bullshit on it. Yeah, because I think for so long, the emphasis has been on us, isn't it? You're the problem, fix yourself. And I love the humility with which you say, you know, I got it wrong for 10 years. I bought into that. I taught it. I preached it. I like drank it, ate it. And it wasn't until the pandemic that I think I really, and it's shocking to me. I mean, I've been marching since I was 13. Like I've been a gender equality activist my whole life. And how I didn't see this part of how it's all about structural change. It's all about kind of the systematic structure that has been set up to torpedo women's excellence and how that that's what we have to spend our time dismantling. And in many ways, it's actually easier. If I have to like push a company to audit their pay policies so that they're just paying women what they're paying men equally, same person, same skills, same education, same, they just pay the same. If I as an activist, spend my time on that rather than literally training one woman at a time to walk into the negotiation room. Like, I'm just going to get to change faster, right? I'm just going to get to equality faster. That's also why I'm just excited about this. It's not even just that I'm mad that we've been sold a lie. It's also just like, I'm like, wow, like we can get here. Like we can do this. And that's really what I'm on a mission on is really just, again, I think teaching this wisdom or knowledge that I've gained that I think we've all gained in saying, okay, now what's the plan, ladies? Like, what are we doing? Tell us how you got to that realization in the pandemic, because I think it's, again, one of those stories that's so personal and so universal, which is you lying on the bedroom floor. I think you're like in your book, you're like, I've got a piece of Lego up my ass or something. It's funny. But also I was like, yeah, I had a bathroom floor moment. Like I'm sure every mother listening will relate to that moment and how that unlocked this next wave of activism in you. And zooming out a bit, like I started the pandemic, Girls Who Code Super Bowl ad. You know, I was running one of the largest women and girls organizations in the world. I spent 10 years trying to have kids. I was finally having my second baby via surrogate. And like, I fought for him, fought to have him. And I was really looking forward to taking my paternity leave. And then the pandemic hit, you know, three weeks after my baby was born, the world shut down. And I had to homeschool my kindergartner, take care of a newborn. I had to go back to work because again, when pandemics hit, the first companies that are hit are women's companies. And I had to make sure that 10 years of hard work, all the hundreds of thousands of girls that depended on me for their education that I didn't let them down. 
So every night I was working 15, 16, 17 hours, just exhausted taking care of these little babies and then trying to, my parents, right? All of us, it's just what was happening in the world. And, and there are two things that I really saw. One was like, again, half the students I teach are under the poverty line, black and Latina. And during that moment, so many of them were supposed to be on their way to college to major in computer science, but because their mothers were essential workers, they had to not forgo their higher education and take care of their siblings because we have a broken structure of care in America. We don't have paid leave. We don't have childcare. We don't have anything. And then the second thing was my leadership team were mostly all, you know, moms with young kids. And we were all just saying to ourselves, well, when the schools open, we'll be fine. And so we were all having these moments, which I found myself in my son's bedroom on the floor with a Lego stuck in my head, just desperate and done. And thinking to myself, this is not normal. This is not right. And I think one of the things that the pandemic was so clarifying on, when I've had moments like that, I would think I'm failing. I'm just not doing the balance right. It's my fault. I'm working too hard or my care situation's not right. My husband's a jerk. You know, it's me. And then I think because we were all collectively going through the same thing globally, we realized, oh, it's not us. It's the system. It's the structure. And so I wrote kind of an op-ed being like, we need a Marshall plan for moms, being like, we need structural change. And when I talked to my PTA moms, you know, at the play, this is what we were saying. It's not rocket science. It's basic. And, you know, that post that I made went viral. And then we cheekily kind of followed it up with a full page ad in the New York Times to President Biden, because at that time he had just become president. And often presidents say, well, what should I do in the first hundred days? And so it's like, I got something to tell you to do in the first hundred days. And I had like 50 women, like celebrities from Gabriel Union, you know, activist, Charlie Slairzon and CEOs from like Rent the Runway and, you know, Weight Watch, like basically all kind of signing on to this letter. We followed up with a group of 50 men led by Steph Curry and again, famous basketball players, actors also saying like, yeah, moms don't work for free and we need a social safety net. And now almost a year and a half later, two years later, we are, you know, fully building a movement in an organization to make these structural changes happen. It's crazy to me, and I know you agree with this, that it's almost like the moment you have that awareness, it becomes almost shocking that we didn't have it before. You know, this idea that just women would just pick up the majority of emotional, domestic, invisible labor while also working, that we would just do that. And now when you look at the evidence and the impact and you think, oh my gosh. And then like the motherhood myth, like we would just think, oh no, it's me. I need to work harder. Well, we all bought it. I bought it. You bought it. We all bought it. And now I feel like it's such a different landscape thanks to you and others here in the UK. We've got some incredible activists in the UK working on this. This is happening across the globe, which is incredible. The mothers listening, they will be with us. I know they will be with us. This is such a universal challenge, but what can they do within their own lives? If someone is listening, thinking, yes, we need to fix the system. We need to change the structure, but I've still got to go to my organization, which hasn't changed yet. I've still got to do this, which hasn't changed yet. What can someone do right now to start to break this motherhood myth? You know, at Moms First, right, we're now a movement of half a million moms and we're fighting for three things. I think we all have to focus. I think there's three things that we all need. Childcare, paid leave, and equal pay. And I think if we fight and get those things, the world will change for us. It's not about like a single policy or a workplace policy or an equal partner. It's actually like 
all of it. It's all interconnected. So I want everyone who's listening to see the interconnection. We got to transform our government, our workplaces, and our culture. And the goal is to like value moms and our labor. And when we do this, like when I say like to allow moms to move in and out of the workforce without penalty, that's when we thrive. And I think keeping our eyes on like, that's the prize. We just actually launched this mom's first challenge and I want everyone to kind of sign up for it. But you know, first place we start is like, put yourself first, put moms first because no one else does. And so the challenge is that before we can even get these policy changes, we have to build the muscle to advocate for what we need and get it. I joke that like, we were thinking about renaming, we were called Marshall Pepper Moms. And we were like looking at all these organization names and Moms First was on the list. I was like, oh, there's no way that that name is going to be available. But of course it was because it's radical. I mean, the fact that it's radical to put yourself first is so interesting, right? So we have to build that practice of what that looks like in our life. It's so important because none of us do this. Even those of us who've been doing this work for so long, it is a daily practice for me to remind myself to put myself first. And why do you think that is? Do you think it's because that conditioning around martyrdom and motherhood runs so deep? It's in our cells. It's just in us, isn't it? Is that what you equate it to? Yeah. I mean, I wrote a book about this, Brave Not Perfect. We've been socialized from the time we're little girls to be people pleasers, to be nice, to say thank you, to make ourselves small, to put everybody else's feelings before ours. You know, one of the stories I tell always is years ago, researchers did basically a test on lemonade. And they had taken this lemonade and they had put salt in it instead of sugar. They gave it to a group of boys and a group of girls, you know, both of them age, I don't know, eight or nine. The boys take a sip of the lemonade and they immediately spit it out. Ew, this is gross. They had no problem telling the researchers that they didn't want to drink that salty lemonade. The girls take a sip and they gulp it down. And they look at them and they say, oh, it's a little salty. Can I have some water? And when the researchers said, why didn't you just tell us that it was not drinkable? All of them said, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. So literally from the time that we're little, we've been putting others first. We don't know what it means to put ourselves first. And when you become a mother, that socialization just gets worse. Yeah, it kicks in. It's like a gear change. It's like a gear change because I think it's also you're also your instinct of like your babies. I got to take care of them. I got to look after them at, at all costs. And, you know, I often look at my husband who's an amazing dad and he just doesn't have those same instincts. And I don't think it's biological. I think it's cultural. We were at dinner last night with a bunch of his friends, of course, all men. And we we're talking about, you know, none of them do the 6 a.m. red eye to get home so they can just get there for drop off. You know, they stay an extra day and sleep. You know, if my husband's traveling for four days, you know, he's not home for dinner. He's got a meeting or something he's got to do. He's not trying to go do pickup in the middle of the day. No. And my kids still love him. All these things that we think we have to do and, and we don't even do them with joy. That's the other thing. I realize there's so many things I do as a mom. I don't do with joy. And if I flip the switch and I say, well, what are the things I like and how do I do them with also centering potentially myself. And why is that seen so selfish that we think that centering ourselves before our children or our partner is a negative characteristic when we don't have the same expectation for men? We think that's being a good provider. 
exactly. And if we are able to stretch that muscle and do something like leave a chaotic bedtime to get out to a yoga class, which happened to me just the other night, the whole way to the bloody yoga class, I'm feeling guilty. I know how to reframe that guilt. I know all the tools, but it's still there. Even after decades of trying to unravel that. Yep. It's still there. But I wonder if we have actually really given women tools and moms tools about how to get rid of that guilt. I know I'm supposed to, but I don't know if I have the tools to really land the plane. I agree with you. And I think it's because they have been far too flowery. Like a lot of the tools around it are like, think a different thought. Well, to me, that does not help. The thing that's really helped me are two things. One is knowing that my guilt comes from an internalized version of a perfect mother. And so I literally wrote out, this is what a good mother does. And the shit that I was writing was unreal. Like a good mother doesn't work. A good mother gets up constantly. A good mother cooks every meal. Just stuff that I'd learned from films and internalized. The moment I got all that on the page, I was like, I'm not measuring myself by this list because that's what my guilt was, I think. Measuring myself against that internalized list. I was then able to set this new set of values of what I actually was going to measure myself against, which was really powerful. That's a really good tactic. I'm going to try that. I do think even generally, we all have to recondition ourselves to not care what other people think. The minute that I became free of that, it changed everything for me. I also think it's because we're constantly being judged all the time. And we see it. People have no problem telling you, you know what I mean? When you're on a plane or you're in a cafe or like, you know what I mean? What to do with your child or what not to do with your child. The last time I felt that way is like when I got a dog for the first time, like people just did not mind stopping you on the street when you had a little puppy to tell you how you're supposed to be taking care of them. It's fascinating. And we do it to each other. We do it to each other. That's the worst. And I think that's because we're so insecure as mothers in our choices. And that's where judgment is highest when we're most insecure. I think that's why. Dr. Becky, she said this to me, well, she's probably said it to you as well, but it really helped me as well around guilt. She said, so much of what you think is guilt is just you taking on other people's feelings. So your kid is crying because you're going out to yoga. That's not your feeling. You are doing something in line with your values, which is caring for your body so that you can ultimately be a better mother. Don't take on their feeling or don't take on your partner's huffing and puffing when you're asking them to do something. She said to me, imagine a glass wall between you and everyone else's feelings. That glass wall follows me around. I love it. It's so powerful. It's funny. I don't know if you do this, but like I then seek out that too. I was with my sister and we had like left my husband with all the kids. You know what I mean? And he had to, we told him like, go take him like, you know, it's just like some sports thing. Right. And so her and I went shopping with my niece and the whole time he is calling me every hour to be like, oh my God, one of them pooped. Cause that's what they do. And she said to me, why are you answering the call? Just turn it off, put it on silent, put it in your bag. And I was like, yeah, she's like, that's what I do. And it was just such an obvious point that felt so radical to me. It's like, you know, when you have the friend who is super needy and you're constantly, we get into these patterns with people. And I think in relationships where we're kind of trying to basically appease whether it's the friend, whether it's the parent, whether it's the partner, whether it's the kid. And I think people pick up on that. And I love what Dr. Becky said, because I think part of it is if you, again, if you unlearn this in one area, you're like, I need to unlearn my, I roll over for everybody. You know what I mean? Once you're in my life, it's like, I'm the one, even though I'm the busiest person in my family, the busiest person in my friendship group, 
I'm the one who's planning the trips, the parties, the events. I'm the two in the morning phone call, right? I'm the person you call to pick you up from the doctor because people know that I'll do it. And it's wild. Where does that pleaser come from in you? I think when we're little girls, I think we're just from the time we're little girls. And so I think you have to really, really, really reteach yourself how to undo it. There is something as well. I don't know if you relate to this, but there is a part of me when you were talking about that phone call, I quite like that feeling of being so needed in my family. It's like when you're like, I don't know about you, like my partner, it's like, I always do the packing when we're going on a trip. And when you get into the car and then he's like, oh my God, did you get the bottle? And I'm like, check. I got it. I got it. You're playing a role that actually also provides you satisfaction. This is why oftentimes when I talk to groups of women, I always say, you know, the past years when I walk away, people are often looking at me like I'm crazy. And I have to be like, I'm not describing a utopia. I'm describing a Norway. And I always analyze this with my team. And I think it's like, they're like, you know, they're not looking at you like they're crazy because you're describing something that feels impossible to reach, but you're talking about something that we haven't really considered is possible. And so there's just so much contemplation in terms of like, could the world look like that? Could I not answer that call? Could I put it on silent? Could I go to that yoga class and really enjoy myself? And again, you know, you're not describing something because you have a partner, if you're in a relationship that will go to yoga class and it has a great time and just doesn't even think about it. And it's a good parent. And like you say, our kids love us both the same, right? It's not that he is loved less. And I think this is where it gets exciting talking about these conversations, because this is where we can get to change the generational impact. And maybe some of what you and I are talking about will happen in our generation, maybe the next. But I really make a big deal around my kids of me doing stuff like that, of leaving, because I want them to see that I am not martyring myself in motherhood, because that's what I saw my mum do. And that's what I try to decondition myself. It's so hard. So I think breaking that cycle is so important and it's so powerful. It's so important. And I mean, I never, my mother worked and she always complained about work, but then she didn't retire until she was like 75 because she loved her work. But she felt like she had to say to me that she didn't like it because she was working so much. That's why for me, like I have two boys, so, you know, I try to take them everywhere so they can see me. And I don't walk out the door. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I have to go on this trip. You know, I explain why I have to go because it's the same. I don't want to create that same pattern that I grew up with, but you have to be intentional. And this is why I think, again, this moment so powerful is you have to give people the space to take a minute and examine how they were raised and how they're raising their children and what it means for themselves. And again, I think that's why this moment is so powerful because I don't think we imagined another way. And it's also why so much of what we've been taught is so toxic because, you know, again, when you put it on us, you don't see the system. Well, it's a smart way, isn't it, of deflecting from the elephant in the room is if you make the problem the person, it's a really smart way society's deflected. It's really funny to think about how that happened. And there must have been some intentionality, you know what I mean, around that conditioning. And it is, it is a very big U-turn we're trying to make right now. Because if we continue that way, right, if you continue to tell women it's your problem, it's your fault, you fix yourself, get a sponsor, get a mentor, lean in a little bit harder. If you continue to do that, we're never going to get to equality. And it's almost like, what's the point? I feel like saying to young women, don't, why do you go to college? What's the point? 
I have a lot of friends in my life. I think as we're trying to make change, I think when we look at our own lives, we're like, that thing's probably not happening for us because of gender, because of structural, because of discrimination. And so what's the point? Why am I pushing so hard? Why am I working so hard? Why am I trying so hard when it's probably not going to happen? And not because of me, but because of the system. And that is why I think it's so important. I do think that there's a lot of women at their third act, and I meet them all the time, that kind of look back at their careers and say, what did I do? What was it for? You know, I think about my own life, like I spent so much time trying to have my babies. And then it's like, for my first one, I barely saw him. I didn't see him walk. I didn't see him crawl. I didn't see him take his, because I was on a plane and a train and thinking that that's what I had to do to change the world. And so now it's like, I'm really tried shifting my relationship with work and motherhood and being able to spend the time that I want to spend, live the life that I want to live, which is one of that has real time with my family without it being at the cost of my ambition for change. And I think constantly giving yourself permission, reminding your friends in like changing the world around you to have those expectations that you're allowed to have for yourself in the life that you want is so critical. And I think that that is really different. And I don't think we have the language. Like we had the language for the lean in moment, lean in moment, having it all, work-life balance, all that shit has to be thrown in the garbage. But we don't really have the words in the language for the moment that we're in now. And it's exciting too in figuring that out. I'm so struck by what you said about the women looking back thinking, what was it all for? And you fighting to have your first son and then not seeing him. How would you have wanted it to look? What would you have wanted to happen in those first years? Much more similar to where I feel like I'm at right now, where, okay, so I was speaking to someone about this today. So oftentimes I'll get an offer to come give a speech and my agent will say, okay, well, what's the fear? What's the thing? And they're like, oh, there's no fear. This is a great opportunity for her. They never say that to me. I bought into that. I got to be everywhere because I need every opportunity. Got to be in every room. And so I never said no. And I lost control over my schedule and my life. And my kid paid the price of that. I paid the price of that. My marriage paid the price of that. My health paid the price of that. And so now, like I said in in our Stephen podcast, I got onto the joke. And I was like, oh, if I can eat any opportunities, I'm good. I decide. And that has allowed me to get a lot more control over my schedule and my life. And in fact, it has accelerated my work. I teach boundaries, right? And this is one of the things I am so passionate about. I think people think that when you start saying no and lying, you know, those non-negotiables and those boundaries, that the opportunities are going to flutter away. My experience has been the absolute opposite. I am so intentional because I'm so boundaried with my time. I'm so efficient because I'm so boundary with my time. And also it saves me so much time. Like early in doing this work and mother kind on the platform, I would agonize. How am I going to say, no, I don't want to do it. Or should I do it? Or now it's like, no, flat. No, if it just doesn't, no, it's so quick. Yeah. Like Stephen got caught up in that. Like his team has asked me four times before I said yes. Cause I was just like, ah, oh, I can't, but they kept on it. And I think that's the other thing we have to remember is that if you're meant to do something and I believe in the world, I believe in the universe. I was meant to do that podcast. And so it's going to come back at you and it's going to be the right time where I'm like, okay, I can go do that right now. The taping was 
in LA, you know? And so I was like, I can't fly there right now. When the right time came and it was meant to be, you did it. The lesson is I wasn't going to miss that. The universe was not going to let me miss that opportunity because that was an opportunity. And I think this is such an important point because when we're talking about these massive topics of restructuring society in the workplace to fit around mothers, I think some of that idea is around trust. Essentially, what you're talking about is trusting the timing can feel so ethereal and so really, is that what you're, but in my experience, I feel like that gives such a confidence. It gives such a confidence because the opposite of trust is control. And I think when we try and control every element of our schedule of our day, it's like, that's when you get to burnout. It's like, I've just got to keep going and going and going and going. And I think it's like when you look at, I don't know, I was looking at Barack Obama and I feel like the way he walks around life was like, this was all meant to be. I got this. Like, that's where I'm I'm trying to practice my sense of, and it is about, you trust the universe that it's all going to work out the way that it's supposed to work out. And I also think when you're detached to outcomes or to credit or to fame or to recognition, it's even better. Like, I actually don't really care to like win anything, get anything. I'm good in this lifetime, but I am relentless about change. I want to get paid leave and affordable childcare passed in the United States, period. And I'm not going to give up until that happens. So when you're relentless and ambitious about the change that you want to make in the world and every decision you make is following that and it not being something that feels personal, I also think it makes it easier for you to decide and have more of that sense of like, again, joyfulness in your life of where you want to be spending time. Yeah. Because it's a different place, isn't it? When you come to work, and it's such a privilege, I think you would agree for you and I to be sat here talking about purposeful work because not everyone gets that privilege. But I think there's such a difference when you come at it from a place of sacrifice as opposed to a place of true service. What I'm hearing you say, it's not even about me anymore. I'm just in service of this mission. Correct. But that also means that I get permission that when I'm tired to rest, you know, and I think that's the hard part, especially I think so many of us like that are in this space right now and that feel the intensity and the opportunity of this moment are burned out. Jolie, our mutual fan from Pregnant and Then Screwed, who we both love, she talks really openly about her burnout. Almost couldn't carry on. Yeah, I'm sure. Also, the other thing is, is like, which I talked to my girlfriends about, it's very hard because you're working on something that you're like, I don't know, is this going to happen? There's so much anger and passion and injustice wrapped up. Like for me, like I spent my life teaching girls to code. That was all joyful, (laughs) joyful. You know what I mean? Anger at like people were not hiring them, but a lot more here. You're really in this moment where you're like, seriously, that is the other part. I think when you're living a purposeful life, especially when you're a crusader and a warrior of like how to check back in with yourself to say, okay, I need to just watch some movies for like a couple of days and not be fighting the good fight right now. Are you good at that? I'm better at it, but I'm also good at it because I got kids who are freaking hilarious and cute and they will grab my phone and throw it across the room. They will really like demand my time. And I think we're really close. So I feel like, I don't know if I didn't have children or my little dog, Stanley, whether I would be as good at it as I am. What are you like as a mother? Like we know what you're like as a public activist, 
what are you like as a mother? And are you the sort of mother you thought you'd be? I am a lovey-dovey, kissy, huggy, touchy mother. So I constantly am like hugging, touching, kissing my kids. They're normally on top of me if I'm around. I'm definitely very protective. My three-year-old has really bad asthma and it's been a rough couple of years as we've gotten to figure out how to control it. But there's been a lot of, I don't know if anyone has had to be in hospital, you know, with a little baby. It's, it is, and it's the first time where something has brought me to my knees. I can't handle it. I cry like once a year, like I'm very strong and it's the way I was, you know, my own journey personally has gotten me to this place, but it, it is the one place where I will get a panic attack. I will feel like I, I gotta, you know what I mean? I can't handle it, which is interesting. And that's also had to really make me think about like, what is that about? I'm grateful for my husband being there because I feel like in many ways, he's the stronger one in these moments. I feel like motherhood just does that to you, doesn't it? It crumbles you in ways that you didn't think it was possible to be vulnerable and to be crumpled. And that's a really hard thing and a really beautiful thing. At exactly the same time, there's so many paradoxes in motherhood and that's definitely one of them. Yeah. It's very, very humbling, but you're right. My sister used to always tell me that it's like, when I was having all my fertility stuff and she says it never ends. It's like, I feel like President Obama says, it's like when you have a child, it's like your heart is walking around the earth outside of your body. And it's so true, but I love being a mother. I couldn't imagine my life in any other way. And maybe that's why, again, I feel so passionate about this because, you know, I talk to young women today, they don't want to have kids and there's nothing wrong with not having kids, but like, let it be a true choice. And I often feel like it's because they look at us and they're like, nah, I'm going to be broke. It's too hard. I don't get the respect. I'm not supported. And so we're taking the choice of motherhood away from so many people. Well, when you said earlier on, you said, imagine if women could move in and out of the workforce and not be penalized for it. When you said that, that was a goosebump moment because I'm sure you know, the generation before us look and think, I'm not going to study my ass off at school, go to uni, do a master's to then become a mother and lose 40% of my earnings overnight. Why would I do that? It doesn't make any sense. But imagine if that wasn't the case. Can you imagine? Or the fact that like, I have this beautiful being in my life and I want this experience. I want the experience of being able to really spend time and raise them. And, and that doesn't mean that I lost my brain or I don't, I don't want to do this work. It's just like, do you want to own time? People do that all the time about other things. They take a sabbatical, they learn how to play an instrument and they may take time off. That's having a full life. And we deny that to parents. And then we call it the gender pay gap when in fact it's not at all. It's the motherhood penalty. I could talk to you for hours, honestly. I'm so inspired by your work, but also your personal vulnerability with which you describe these global challenges in such a personal way. I'm so grateful that you're doing this work. Well, I'm so grateful to you too. And, you know, I think again, having these types of conversations and we need, we need more content, we need more podcasts, we need more films, we need more movies, we need more conversations. Like we have to ignite again, I think a global conversation on motherhood and rebuild it. Yep, for sure. Well, let's hope more and more people join join us in creating and talking about this. Tell us about where people can learn more about Mums First and how can we join the Mums First Challenge? Because that's starting on Monday and I want people to join that. 
starting on Monday. So go to momsforsus.com or go to Rush Johnny. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Go to our website and just literally sign up. It is the easiest thing. And then we will just kind of send you a prompt what the challenge is. And it's going to be super fun. And I think it's going to really help develop and strengthen that muscle to help us all ask for what we deserve and get it. Exactly. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I would give mothers the gift of time to do something for themselves and the permission to do something for themselves and it not feel selfish. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. I'm Lauren and I'm Nicole and if you enjoy this show you will love our podcast self-care club every week we trial a different form of self-care and report back on the results we've tried everything from cuddle therapy setting boundaries laughter yoga and many more two friends who rarely agree on anything testing out the world of self-care so you don't have to we've even written a book dedicated to self-care practices that cost you nothing you can listen to self-care club wherever you get your podcasts or to purchase our book search have you tried this on amazon